everybody. We're back. It's the coven of the inarticulate. We're back to talk about vampires again. I'm Casey, and I'm here with Raph and Ashley. So Ashley's still reading the Vampire Chronicles. Like, it's your first time through, right? Yeah, I'm halfway through Prince Lestat. Oh, my god i've been gaining <laughs> momentum this is very exciting news i know yeah no i know i'm real excited about it too because i like had to stop to read the witching hour and then the second i put that down i've been just fucking plowing through like everything else <laughs> yeah yeah i knocked out merrick and blood and gold and now i'm hopping over to prince Lestat, and it's a good time oh my god i i'm so excited that you're reading prince Lestat. like i can't wait to talk to you about it oh god um, yeah there sure is a fuck lot to talk about <laughs> <laughs> like how how is it so far are you enjoying it it's good i really like rose so far i'm on her chapter me too i posted about this online i'm just happy that we're hopping back to the west coast for a little while because mm-hmm. anytime she like mentions like the bay area my my ears just like perk up and i get like super excited so <laughs> um <laughs> I'm am enjoying the chapter so far. It's like nice being back with the stat, surprisingly. It's like <laughs> yeah, I was like thinking about what you were saying, Casey, the, the other day where like Lestat's really fucking annoying, but then like <laughs> <laughs> like he's really fucking annoying in theory, but then like the minute you like actually start like reading from his perspective again, it's like, oh wait, like you're actually a really traumatized, sensitive individual and that's like really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, like I'm I'm really excited to like see how his character develops more. Yeah. It's always like when I'm not reading a book, I'm always like, oh, Lestat, he's a fucking idiot. But then the minute I start right. reading the book, I'm always like, oh my God, I love you, Lestat. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah. wow, I, I've been crying for like the last hour. <laughs> like yeah. Like one line. And he's just like, so. he's so like charming and funny and you just like fall for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what part are you up to in Prince Lestat? Like the rose part? Yeah, I'm up to the rose part. Well, I just, I just finished it actually. Oh, okay. So, okay. um, um, like Victor just got introduced. <laughs> I like. I already spoiled his character for myself, so like I already fucking know what's going on because I've been on Tumblr forever. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm that's a thing now, and so Good. I just I just finished that little chapter, and I think now it's going back to a chapter from Lestat's point of view. I really have no idea what's going on next, but it's so refreshing. I'm living vicariously through you thank you i mean i like i really i really like that this narrative is kind of like closer to the queen of the dam style where it's like kind of jumping around Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's easier for me to digest i think rather than just like following like a really really long overarching story sort i mean i guess like coming right off of blood and gold it's just like refreshing to be able to like read like a 15 page chunk and then like we're going to, like, another plot line, and we're just kind of hopping around. So that's why I think I've been able to, like, go at a little bit of a faster pace this time, so. That book reads a bit faster, too. I asked you that because a while back, in a different episode, when you were talking about, like, that you were in the middle of Blood and Gold, you had said that there was, like, a lot of rhetorical theory or something, like, in Blood and Gold <laughs> that you were picking up on. Yes. And And I was like, oh, that's very exciting because I love Blood and Gold and it sounded, like, really smart. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know what the fuck rhetorical theory is. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> And so Raph and I were like hoping that you could explain it to us a little bit and like point out some 
moments maybe in VC that like you thought were interesting based on like some I don't know this smart stuff I guess I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it means but I was yeah, like yeah, this yeah. sounds exciting because whenever like I don't know if you guys feel this way but like do you ever read like really good meta or something and it's like so exciting because you're like ah mm-hmm. like it just it's like thrilling that like <laughs> maybe there's like new depth that you never noticed yourself or like whatever like it's just really exciting because we like love these books and it's just it like opens up a new can of worms of like something to talk about or a new way to look at the text and it's really exciting (laughs) so I'm really excited to hear what you have to say (laughs) and I want you to like explain this to us uh, you know Professor Ashley over here Um, (laughs) oh my god Um, yeah no like I completely agree like I mean I'm pretty sure people who have been listening to this podcast for the last 16 episodes or 15 episodes I guess know that like my major in college is technically called civic communications and media rhetoric which Mm. is a fucking mouthful but like yeah essentially for the last three years I've been studying communication theory and rhetorical theory It's just, like, really cool, and I'm really passionate about it because it's, like, one of those things where, like, you don't really realize how foundational it is until you, like, start applying it to stuff. Because, like, we all communicate every single day, and it's something that we don't really think about, but, like, every single thing that we do, every action, the way that we dress, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we read, the way that we talk, like, everything is rhetoric. Um, and is communication and that's like really cool and so like I've written so many just like random fucking papers and shit because like it can apply to anything so like I fucking analyzed a Green Day album through rhetorical (laughs) theory I analyzed Sweeney Todd with like communication theory and so I think it's really applicable to the Vampire Chronicles because like I sort of took a class on like the history of this school of thought and how it developed and it started you know, way, way, way back with the ancient Greeks and the Romans. Um, sort of something that has been around forever. Um, and so I think it's, like, really cool to think about how how these characters sort of use language and symbols to persuade other people and to interact with the world. So, but yeah, I just, like, wanted to give a disclaimer to, like, everyone who's listened to the other podcast episodes that, like, this isn't going to be boring, I promise. So, like, stay It's <laughs> like, I'm going to try to, like, make it cool and fun for y'all. Um, <laughs> but to sort of start off, I, like, wanted to give, like, a basis for, like, what rhetoric is. Because I think, like, especially nowadays, there's, like, a really sort of harmful misconception that rhetoric... I mean, I feel like a lot of people associate it with politics nowadays, yeah. where people are saying, like, you know, like, we want action, not rhetoric. So rhetoric is thought of as, like... The antithesis of like action almost and like change um and people associate it with being like really cunning really like manipulative and like rhetoric definitely can be that but um it's also like so much more and so um the definition that like my textbook gave me is like the strategic use of communication to achieve specific goals and like i think that's totally true it definitely is um like a persuasive tactic but then um, I sort of dug around and I pulled out this other definition that I really liked from a different article that says rhetoric means the action humans perform when they use symbols for the purpose of communicating with one another. So it's not just like, oh, I'm gonna like persuade you to like vote for this candidate or whatever. It's using symbols 
which can be verbal or nonverbal. It's not just like talking to communicate with other people. So, mm-hmm. or that's the definition of rhetoric that like I go off of. Okay. I guess just hopping right into it, I chose like a couple characters that we seem to all like and talk about a lot on the podcast, which are Marius, Armand, Lestat, and Louis. Um, so those are our four like dudes. And I just sort of thought about like the way that each of them exists as a character and like talks, like communicates. Um, and so I sort of went and I picked out like a specific school of thought or a different like rhetorical theory or rhetorical approach um, that they each use. Mm. Yeah, I thought that might be a cool way to unpack their characters mm. and like talk about them. It's really interesting. Um, it's super yeah. interesting. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, 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 good. I'm excited too. So yeah, I guess to start off with, um, we've got Marius because he's the oldest. And whenever anyone takes any rhetoric class, I'm pretty sure the first thing that they're going to learn is the like super old foundational approach to rhetoric, which is called Aristotelian um, because of Aristotle, who was this super old Greek guy, Um, and essentially his approach, he was the first person ever to coin the term, like, rhetoric. He was the first person to, like, write about it, to, like, think about it, and so, like, everyone calls him, like, the father of rhetoric or whatever. And his notion of rhetoric had to do with the idea of, like, civic engagement and, like, public speaking, so it's very, like, traditional and, like, classical. The, like, formal quote that everyone attributes to him is saying that rhetoric is, like, the available means of persuasion. Hmm. It's, like, super straightforward, super formulaic. It's using what you have at hand, what contexts you have, and, like, stuff like that to persuade someone to do something. We have the three, um, I don't know what they're even called. Like, (laughs) areas of, like, persuasion? There's, like, ethos, pathos, and logos. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's sort of, like, a basis that, like, most people know. So it's, like, credibility like, emotional and, um, logical, like, approaches. So those Mm. are the three, like, approaches that you can take to win over a crowd. And then the one thing that I found super useful from Aristotle is this thing called the theory of topics, because it's actually still used today. Like, all of the modern debate teams, like, around the U.S. still, like, use this foundation for their, like, debate practices and stuff. But, um, yeah, so essentially what Aristotle said was that No matter what you are arguing, in any given circumstance, ever, if you can find a way to relate to the crowd through a common topic, you can persuade them of anything. And these common topics were like, nature, or like, we all have a family, right? We're all citizens, right? Like, we all live in this town. We all have, like, something in common. So as long as you can find a common ground with anyone, you can persuade them of anything. Um, And so I think that's really helpful. So I pulled this fun quote from Queen of the Damned. Um, and I guess I'll just read it for you and then I'll and then I'll go over how it, it like relates to Aristotelian rhetoric. So this is when Marius is like convincing Akasha not to like fucking kill everyone and wreck the entire off excellently. Yeah, it's we're we're just jumping right in. We're starting right at the climax. It's fine. <laughs> Um, the stakes are high, so he needs to be really fucking persuasive. That's the thing. So, anyways, he says, Look out there at the forest. Pick one tree. Describe it, if you will, in terms of what it destroys, what it defies, 
and what it does not accomplish, and you have a monster of greedy roots and irresistible momentum that eats the light of other plants, their nutrients, their air. But that is not the truth of the tree. That is not the whole truth when the thing is seen as a part of nature, and by nature I mean nothing sacred, I mean only the full tapestry, Akasha. I only mean a larger thing that embraces us all. So like, you see what I'm saying? Like he uses this, um, this metaphor of nature to sort of twist what she's saying and, and put it within a larger context. Yeah. Um, and so technically that's called like an argument via enthymeme, which is like a really fancy term that I don't even fully understand, but like, it's a metaphor and he uses a really common topic to, um, to get his point across. Therefore, it's Aristotelian. <laughs> this, is, this is, like, so funny to me because, like, we have our little Google Doc where we, like, wrote out our episode outline. And you wrote all this stuff and, like, I read over it and my eyes just kind of glazed over because I was like, I don't know what this <laughs> means. And oh, now you're... Ex- yeah. Now you're explaining it. It makes more sense to me. And then, like, but now that you've explained it, I'm, like, reading over this quote that's, like, never given me a hard time in my life. Like, and I read it, you know, I read this book, like, 17 years ago. And now right. that it, now that I'm thinking about it like this, it seems, like, so much harder. And I'm, like, oh, no, <laughs> this is, like, complicated. And I'm fascinated by it. I don't know. I feel like it sort of helps me understand how Marius yeah. is, like, as a person. Mm-hmm. I feel like all of his arguments are, I don't know, I feel like the way that he conducts himself is very, like, logical and very, like, ordered. Yeah. Yeah. And so, sort of, it, like, super makes sense that he would use this, like, super classical, super, like, traditional, like, yeah. persuasive tools. Yeah, I kind of, like, fucking love it. It's, like, really funny because also, like, when we were learning this in class, it was the most boring shit ever. I fucking hate Aristotle. He was sexist and he was the worst. Um, and it was just like so dumb and I hated it. I hated the unit. I, I never really realized that I could apply it to um, to fucking vampires. Um, right. So that makes it a lot more interesting yeah. to me. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited that I finally fucking found something yeah. um, that has to do with Aristotle that is actually interesting yeah it's it's, uh it's very marios if you it is incredibly marios um (laughs) i love it though because i feel like um me as a me as a marios fangirl and i think like the fandom in general we kind of like rag on him sometimes for like being so roman and like um this is kind of funny because it adds like another layer of context to him that like he would fall back on this, like, really classical way of, like, speaking mm-hmm. to people, especially because, like, you're freshly off Blood and Gold. Like, you know that he, right. like, he goes through his whole life, like, fucking trying to control everybody. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and he just always wants yeah. to, like, he's always, like, trying to, like, get people on his side. He's always trying to, like, convince people to, like, see what he's seeing. And it's true. Like, he totally uses this all the time. It's classic good again like when i was learning this i was like this is fucking stupid it's so rigid like no (laughs) one's gonna fall for this shit like everyone's gonna see through it and everyone's gonna think it's like really fucking manipulative because it's like really structured and formulaic but it's it's fucking effective yeah it's simple but effective so like um i i see the appeal i see why marius would super value this like yeah skill of and also just that 
like Marius just like in terms of him being like hilariously Roman all the time like <laughs> I feel like there's so much in his life that like you see that he uses structure and like like rigid structure to make sense of his immortality like it's the only like him having right. control over something is like the only thing that like lets him cope with being immortal where he has no control in a lot of ways because like he even has said he fears that he might be truly immortal like how there's like a few vampires that might actually be like truly immortal which you know no spoilers but like in the last couple books we're trying we're like you know seeing a little bit of a weak point there even with like akasha where it's like maybe no one's truly immortal like we can't figure out a (laughs) way to get rid of these fuckers but like you know (laughs) Like, he worries about stuff like that, and you see it in, like, the way he structures his life to be, like, uh-huh. super rigid. So, that makes sense. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. Very Marius. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, now that we're sort of sad about that, <laughs> um, are we ready to fucking slip into Armand? I hope so. I'm dying. I mean, I'm never not dying over Armand, but, like... I mean, that's a mood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the title of our episode. That's a mood. <laughs> Fucking hell. The the main theory that I pulled for Armand is called persona theory. And I feel like it's kind of self-explanatory. Or, like, at least it's in the name. So, like, persona theory is the idea that, like, we craft ourselves into these... Into who we are. Oh, like, Ashley, we, I'm we already conscious... sad. I don't know where you're I know, going with this. I know, I know, I know. Like, I'm already sad. <laughs> Because oh it's so right. fucking relevant. Oh, my God. Uh, all right. Wow, I just fucking blew the speaker out on my... Wow, okay. Anyway, but, um, yeah, so it's the idea that, like, we craft ourselves into who we are. We can, as as persuaders, as readers, as people who are communicating with other people, we can specifically craft a persona for ourselves that can be persuasive. So um, I think Armand like super, super takes advantage of that. I mean, I think all of the vampires do to some extent because they have to like pretend to be fucking mortal. But if you're trapped in the body of a 17 year old boy, you're gonna want to like persuade people that you're not an actual 17 year old boy. Um, that you can be fucking strong and angry and shit like that. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really interesting with Armand because it swings both ways. I think there are points in the book where you see him, or, like, when other people see him as, like, this really weak character and they underestimate him. Mm-hmm. And he, like, inten- he intentionally does that. He, like, he wants people to underestimate him a lot so that he can fuck him up later. Um... <laughs> But then also a lot of the time he can be fucking scary as hell. He's like super intimidating. Yeah. So I think like out of all of the characters, Armand is definitely like the master of personas. So I pulled this quote from Prince Lestat that I think sort of exemplifies it. So this is Lestat talking about Armand. So he says, He who appeared as ancient as the old queen, compassing some death they would not understand. I pictured him standing before the altar of the Notre Dame again that ethereal expression on his face, and I found myself believing perfectly in him, in the possibility of him, this ancient one who had stood silent all this while. So, like, I don't know, I just think, like, the... the Uh, (laughs) I'm having, like, a fucking serious, like, existential crisis right now. dying. Uh, Why? (laughs) Um, I just think the line, 
I found myself <laughs> believing perfectly in him and the possibility of him is so fucking heart-wrenching. But it also goes to show you that Armand can morph himself and he's like, he's almost like an empty vessel to like, like people are gonna <sighs> see in him what they want to see to some point. I can't, you called him an empty vessel and I'm upset. I, <laughs> yeah. That's what the stat is calling him almost. Yeah, can I just say that like, this week, you called him a dusty bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not over it yet. <laughs> oh my God. I fucking said what I said. I stand by the dusty bitch line because he kind of is. <laughs> Um, all right. I mean, but <laughs> you're killing me. Yeah. I think also of all the characters that like we know really well, Armand is the person who's probably used this the most because like I feel like the other vampires kind of like like they become a vampire and they decide how they're going to spend eternity and they just kind of like go for it. And Armand has like his life has dramatically changed so many times and he has had to fill all these different roles and have all these pers- mm-hmm. these different pers- personalities like you know he goes from being a student to being like a slave to being a coven master to being like the well the coven master as like a cult leader and then the coven master is like the theater leader that rhymes a little bit and then like ooh, yeah (laughs) and then he's just trying to like be louis mentor and then he's like trying to be a good boyfriend like he's just and then he's like trying to be a dad and then marius ruins it and then it's like (laughs) like it's just tough he's had like a hard life so and you know right and i'm like and it's like so (sighs) fucking sad because i feel like a lot of the time he tries to morph into what he thinks people want of him like what he thinks people think that he should be and then other times when he tries to reject that idea when he tries to exude power and and sort of be be a leader it like always fucking backfires so it's just kind of bullshit (laughs) i can't even say anything because i'm very upset (laughs) but um (laughs) i have so many like thoughts and feelings right now and I don't know where to put them but it's like yeah because it's like Amon everyone else has been I wouldn't say like an adult but they've been more formed as people I feel like before they yeah. returned and Armand has never had that opportunity because it, he was like formed by other people all the time even when he was mm. mortal so I, I feel like his life is more of like an imitation game that's what he's he always does uh. like he imitates because he doesn't know how to really be whatever exactly. is expected of him or what he feels like. So like he looks at someone else and he's like, okay, in this theater, the way you survive is you do this and this and this. So I become that. That's that's his like exactly. mo. He's and a it's fucking chameleon. Exactly. Like, and he has to do that to kind of survive. And so whether it's like a persona, yeah, I guess it's the same theory. I'm just, I guess I'm thinking about it in terms of like imitation of like psychology. Like, how do you survive? Right. And and right. because that's yeah. how that's how children learn as well. Is that they start out imitating and then they figure out, you know, the trick of it and they do it for real mm-hmm. and it becomes like a genuine thing where but if you can't do if you can't make that transition from imitation to actually doing something, yeah, I guess then you're kind of stuck in that imitating stuff all the time. It's like kind of like a fake it till you make Aww. it, but do you ever really make it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Yes. Rough. Oh my god. Well, I'm I'm upset because <laughs> when I just ran through the Rolodex of all of Armand's personas, I like started at vampire. Yeah. And I'm like upset because 
you're correct. It's been his whole life because then even as a child, he had that like with the monks and then also being kidnapped mm-hmm. and being like forced into prostitution. Like, mm. that's horrible. I'm so upset because then he's like just doing what he has to do to survive and like be the product they're selling. Yeah. Like, this is horrible. That's I'm really so upset. Up. I'm so sad. Yeah, oh, no. no, I know. Like, when he, oh God, that was literally, oh, that was the part that fucked me up so bad in blood and gold yeah when he was like when he like picked up armand's thoughts at first and then like when he like rescued armand like like right when he rescued armand like he was trying to like get him to like come out of his shell and like talk to him and he like literally couldn't because he was so fucking traumatized that he was like repressing everything and he just like wasn't doing anything so he had to like relearn how to be a human yeah. Like, he had to relearn everything. Um, and so I think, yeah, like you were saying, Raph, it's it's a game of mimicry. It's a game of trying to both learn how to fit in, but also learn which which strategies, which personas are going to benefit you the most. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really sad about it because a lot of people think that it's Armand being fucking manipulative. Like, that's what everyone calls them. Like, they always are talking about how, like, cunning he is. And, like, I think that's absolutely true. Like, I think he's really fucking smart and he does use it to his advantage. But, like, I think he walks the line between being maliciously manipulative, but then also just trying to fucking, like, survive. Yeah, and it's like he learned to, he learned how to do all of that because of what happened to him. It's not like that's not his personality. Like, it, it's a different, right. it's a tactic. And that's kind of, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you know, sometimes he is manipulative on purpose. Like, he is doing it to, like, you know, gain something or to achieve some right. certain goal. But I think... Uh, from my point of view at least it's it's mainly just that that's who he is or that's what he does like that's what he's always done and that's his mo that's yeah. what he always does it's he doesn't know any different and it's like i think most people imitate all the time it's a very normal thing to do everyone does it but like i think when you've been doing it since you were like five then it becomes such an ingrained part of your personality that is like when is stuff real and when is it imitation when is it like yeah mimicry when is when are you even trying to just be you you're always the goal in a way like you're always trying to achieve something uh it's just extremely upsetting like (laughs) i'm you know i'm like slumped in my seat like i don't know what to do (laughs) i didn't i wasn't expecting this (laughs) i know damn now i really want to go and fucking write a paper on this because like if you were dissecting something from a rhetorical or like as a rhetorical critic there's like a difference between like theory and like criticism yeah so like theory is like talking about it and just like shooting out ideas but, like, criticism is, like, when you actually take an artifact and, like, make an argument from it. Yeah. So, like, now I really want to fucking go through the books and write an essay about how Armand utilizes his personas. Um, hashtag yikes. Can I just say, like, how much I fucking love Anne Rice? I'm just putting it out there. Like, because she made these books and I just feel <laughs> very upset. God bless. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shout, quick shout, shout out. Shout out to Anne. Thanks. Thanks for hurting us. Thanks for fucking us up real bad. Like, I love it, but... (laughs) I'm feeling a little salty that you brought up that it's, like, not fair that people call him manipulative because, like, you're correct. You're both correct. It's a survival technique that he's had to employ since he was a small child. So it's not only, like, 
it's not just a matter of him doing it like for the fuck of it for fun like he does it to protect himself and i'm very upset right i mean (sighs) yeah (laughs) i'm still fucking salty about all the shit that went down with louie but like you're right it's like a totally like learned thing where that's like second nature to him Um, yeah and that's really sad to think about (laughs) but like when you think about that you know as a child that he was ready to like because i i'm like still every time i think about this it like fucks me up but it really (laughs) like it really bothers me that he was like gonna dedicate himself to living in like the monastery in the caves and then like he wound up fucking underground in a cult anyway and Uh, that like in a in a literal like because you could say oh like he's living underground he's dead he's a vampire he's in a coffin like Like, in the literal dirt yeah you could say in a symbolic level that becoming a vampire is like being in the cave but then it's like literally like living underground with the cult i'm just really upset so like you know but he was gonna go do that like he was ready to do that as a child and like when you're like like i don't give a fuck like you're a little kid like you don't have the faculties to make that decision no so it's like he was just ready to like dedicate himself to this cause and like dedicate his whole life to it and like so immediately from a small age because like monks too are like they have their own lifestyle. They're very rigid where they don't have personalities in a lot of ways. Like, you know, so like he was ready to do that. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know if like I think he was ready to do it. I don't think he had a choice. Like, because when you're yeah. a child, like you're a child, you're defenseless. Like you have nothing. So like, yeah, um, if you're put into that situation and you're told this is how you give your life worth, then what else are you going to do? You have no, you have mm-hmm. no references to do anything else. So, so I don't think it's a choice that I don't think he was like ready to give himself over to it. I think he, that's what you do. Like what, what yeah. other options are there? Um, you've been right. put here because you're like good at painting or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. Especially in what was it like the 15th century when like you're considered a man when you're like 15 years old. So, like... Yes, at least, like, Lestat had... He had sort of a teenage thing about, like, running away with the theatre and doing things. And, like, at least Louis was, like, 25. But, like, Armand yeah. never had yeah. a real life, I guess, like, before. So it's that's why I appreciate what's been happening in the newer books, like, with Trinity Gate and stuff, because... I feel like finally after like what <laughs> fucking like 500 600 years um he's he's gaining that like freedom to actually be himself where I feel like a lot of the time is it has been that whole imitation thing of just trying to like fucking survive mm-hmm. and get over your traumas and like becoming a real person in a way and making your own decisions so uh, for fuck's sake yikes yeah. I can't <sighs> Yeah. Oh my god. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) tell us about rhetorical theory. Okay. Any any more closing thoughts on Armand before we move on to Lestat? I just, I just need a minute. Oh, oh god. god i'm like at one point i was thinking it would be interesting to have a legit psychologist talk us through some of this shit because it's so interesting Dude, i agree but but i, I don't it. think That'd i could actually cool. take it <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's too we horrible. end up needing a therapist after yeah, the episode exactly. like it's too like... much i, I literally oh was just thinking that before like when you were talking about Armand. that's literally what i was thinking of but i was also thinking that like the three of us need to have like a group therapy to like get through this 
Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. It's but too, like, it's obviously, <laughs> it's just gonna be like two hours of us screaming. For fuck's sake. Like, like we need to learn some coping mechanisms <laughs> yeah. to deal with the Armand pain. I know we're like fifteen episodes in. Like we're we're damaged beyond repair at this point. <laughs> like it would be nice to like. <laughs> it'd be nice to learn. Broken internally. It's like, yeah. Um, I have a sticker from the podcast on my computer, and sometimes when I go like to work or I go to school or whatever, people are always like, "What's that sticker?" And I have to explain this whole thing about being on a vampire podcast yep. because people don't know what Anne Rice is. So I'm always like, "Well, it's like, do you know how like before Game of Thrones came out, there was like they did podcasts on it, and people were like, mm, yeah, I guess I can kind of see that.' I'm like, well, you know." It's like we're it's we're doing some stuff about books as well, but ours is like vampire books, and people are always like, "Oh, okay, like it's Twilight," like they think it's Twilight, or right. they think yeah, it's like Buffy, or they like whatever. But like yeah. they don't understand that these books, <laughs> you know how deep they are. Like I don't know how to explain <laughs> it, but like it's just a very Dude, profound same, experience. I know. That's what like, I tell everyone. That's like, how we can spend like... so much time talking about it because there are so many fucking layers to it. It's not like. It's not just a sparkling vampire. Like, I'm sure there are layers to Twilight as well. I don't know. I have not read them. But th- th- there's a reason why we can spend so much time talking about it. Yeah. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Ugh, I just, yeah. Okay. I'm, I just want to paint the picture for you guys that I'm sitting in the dark. I have all the lights off. And I had to, like, oh, no. I had to, like, take my glasses off and, like, pinch the bridge of my nose. So I'm just sitting here, like, holding my face. But... <laughs> I guess I'm. I guess I'm okay. I'm. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'm like I'll nursing okay. my water bottle right now because I don't have anything else to like. <laughs> like yeah. I don't have anything else to do with my hands, and I just want to curl up into a ball. Mm. Anyway, well, yeah. so for Lestat, I also put that he's a fan <laughs> of Persona Theory. Oh, um, God. But he uses he utilizes it in a different way, and I think that's through fashion. Um, so <laughs> on a completely different side of the spectrum that'll hopefully be a lot less devastating (laughs) one of the really cool things that like i personally really like studying is how people use fashion and dress and like like physical appearance to be persuasive because it totally is a thing like right now in my women's rights class we're studying like how women fucking rebelled by wearing pants and it's dope um (laughs) so it's like a really cool, like, thing that has, like, a history with, like, being persuasive. I'm realizing now I probably should have picked- there's so many fucking quotes about Lestat and his goddamn jackets, and I should have picked one of them, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> I just, like, I just wanted to, like, throw it out there that I think it's really cool because, like, like, yeah, like, we construct our personas and our identities through how we dress, and, like, we judge people how- we judge people based on how they're dressed. It's, like, the very first thing that we do, like, when we see another person, and so- like, I feel like a lot of people write Lestat off as being, like, really vain and, like, really fucking pompous. And, like, don't get me wrong, I 100% think that he is and he's <laughs> a little bitch sometimes. But also, like, he came from an era where being dressed was the most, like, being really well-dressed was the most important thing, like, ever. Like, your dress signified your class like your job or whatever it like signified everything and so like I think that's something that's sort of been ingrained in him 
as he moved throughout the centuries. So, like, even now when he's talking about, like, oh, like, I'm wearing this fucking velvet blazer and, like, I look really cool and with, like, my leather boots and stuff. Like, (laughs) I think it's still, like, him attempting not only to be, like, likable, but to, like, almost stay relevant in a way. So I think I think you could read deeper into that in instead of just like writing him off as being a fashionista. Um so that's just one way that you can use persona theory to analyze fucking fashion discourse. <laughs> <laughs> um and I thought that would be fun to mention. Yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that cuz like um I know you weren't there, but and no spoilers, but in uh in Blood Communion <laughs> there's quite a bit of clothes talk. Mhm. Like, a lot. Wow. <laughs> it's okay. Great. It's, like, classic Lestat. <laughs> it's so great. Good. But, but like, we were talking so about ready. how, um, like, it's kind of, like, this funny meta thing because sometimes you see people rag on Anne Rice about it as if it's, like, a writing flaw. And I'm like, no, I don't think it's her. I think it's Lestat. Like, I think it's just him <laughs> right, right. being a materialist and it's actually fucking genius. <laughs> like, it's yeah. great that he does this. And so, like, that's kind of funny to me. And I, like, he does make a really big deal about it. And he's, like, he cares about it. And I also think, like, it's, like, a he he makes a big deal about using fashion to stay connected to, like, the time period he came from. Mm -hmm. He mentions it, like, all the time. And I think that's really interesting because, like, we know throughout the books that that's kind of, like, a thing that sometimes the vampires get, like, stuck in the time period they came from or they feel emotional about it. Right. Yeah. And also, (laughs) the little quip that, I forget which book it's in. Well, I guess when when Marius gets, like, really fucking pissy about Lestat Mm -hmm. stealing his color red, (laughs) like... It's in Blood and Gold. (laughs) That's, like, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, it's actually a thing. Like, I mean, you could fucking probably write a paper on the symbolism of the color red. Or whatever the fuck. Yeah. So it's like... (laughs) I don't know, I just, I think it's really funny that, like, that's something that's, like, so important to him, that, like, the color red has meaning to him. <laughs> I just read that quote yesterday, like, last night, um, <laughs> and it's, like, because Marius says that um, he's really, like, he says kind of, like, I'm over it, or, like, I'm accepting it, but, like, yeah, and, 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 he's, and he it. says, like, well, <laughs> you know, I have my certain shade of red, but Lestat has this particular bright shade of red that is so close to mine (laughs) that I'm you know I'm upset about it but I'm choosing to be you know cool about it and pretending like I don't care but it totally bothers me (laughs) it's really hilarious (laughs) and Thorn is like naked next to him in a bathtub and is like okay fine (laughs) and then Thorn is like yeah and Thorn is like well I prefer just like um, brown leather, that's my thing. And Marius is like, oh like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the fuck? Amazing. Oh my god, That's y'all. really funny. But yeah, I think it's really funny. They get, like, so emotionally attached to this shit. It's so good. <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, I relate because, like, I'm a metalhead, and sometimes, like, I feel like if I'm not, if I don't look metal enough, I think that, like, I look like a loser. Yeah. So like, no, like I, I relate 100% to that. agree. Yeah. I'm the same fucking thing. Like if I don't wear yeah. a certain amount of band shirts per week, 
Exactly. I feel, like yeah. I live in band shirts. Like right. it's so goofy. And I keep right. being like I keep being like, when am I gonna grow out of this? But I can't. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it gets you. Yeah. You wrap yeah. your identity in it. Yeah. But it's so also true. It's, um, the other thing that I wrote down for Lestat is this thing called vernacular rhetoric. Um, I think it sort of has to do with personas. It's kind of like a little subsection under persona theory. Um, but like, yeah, vernacular rhetoric is like the idea of like informal social learning. So the idea of sort of adapting the way that you communicate in like a less formal setting to be able to like express your ideas to like more people in like a more accessible way so like it was really cool like the unit that we did this in my class we like studied this one particular like public speakers like speech tour and how she changed her vernacular to like talk to people in like the north versus the south of america because Mm. like those people are gonna have like different backgrounds different educations different like life experiences so like how do you um appeal to those um so it's really cool um and like I just yeah like I thought it was really neat because um thinking about like Lestat um he well okay I guess I'll read my quote first and then (laughs) I'll talk about it afterwards um but the quote that I pulled from him is also from Prince Lestat or it's not from Prince Lestat the vampire Lestat they all have his fucking name in it. I don't <laughs> know what I'm reading anymore. Um, anyways, like, at the very, very beginning, he says, Regarding my English, the language that I use in my autobiography, I first learned it from the flatboatman who came down to the Mississippi, who came down to Mississippi from New Orleans about 200 years ago. When I write, I drift into a vocabulary that would have been natural to me in the 18th century into phrases shaped by authors I've read. So that's fucking, that's it. That's vernacular rhetoric. Yeah. Um, <laughs> case in point. Yeah, pretty much, like, the idea that, like, he takes these, like, different languages and he he learns from them. So, like, he talks about learning from, like, comic books and, like, these weird-ass, like, detective shows. Um, and it's just, like, a weird, like, amalgamation of everything. But, like, yeah, I think it's, like really cool to like notice when he sometimes slips into like French mm-hmm. like you'll I don't yeah I don't have any specific examples but like I know at least like once or twice in the books like when he gets really angry he'll speak more in French or he'll speak more in like these weird like quipped um terms from like different centuries in blood communion in the beginning of this as there is in all books a description of himself like he describes himself <laughs> right, and right, he, and yeah. he uh, i noticed because i wrote it down because i was like where is this where are these words coming from so it's really interesting but he said like he described himself as a matinee idol he said that he was yeah. he was like uninteresting because he basically was like a matinee idol and i was like i don't remember him ever saying that before but it was really interesting just to That's like really where that yeah, came okay. from because it's like all of a sudden that popped into his head like I'm a matinee idol. <laughs> like, what? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, like, that's I just, such an yeah. old thing to say. Yeah. It's really weird, but it's yeah. it's it definitely sounds like something something you'd hear in, like, yeah, I don't know, like an interview maybe from the 60s or 70s or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense, like, um, why he would pull that out all of a sudden. Yeah. I I love that. Like, that's a, I feel like this comes up a lot in, um, well, humans do this too, like code switching and stuff. Mm. 
but um, right, yeah, that's you know, another thing that I that's had pretty, down. Like that's pretty much all it is. It's like code switching because you know vampires. Like when you're immortal, you have to do that to survive and to blend in. Like you have to adapt to like right, right. new words and like you know. I love it with um, in Vampire Chronicles too because like they say how when you have like you know when you have the capital B blood like he just kind of like the mind gets <laughs> yeah. kind of like absorbs other languages and you just uh-huh. like learn languages and like switch on and off and like this comes up so much in the books like it happens when um I, I thought of three off the top of my head one is when Lestat first meets Marius and Marius asks him, like, what language he'd like to speak in, like, where he's most comfortable. And then Marius right, is, like, yeah, talking yeah. to him in French because he thinks it'll make mm-hmm. Lestat more comfortable, which is, again, Marius, like, connecting on Lestat's level to, like, communicate with him. Right. Oh, right. my God, Ashley, you're making me so smart. Yay! <laughs> and, then, like, <laughs> and then it also reminds me this comes up twice in Tale of the Body Thief because, like, when he's... So when he goes to the restaurant, he's, like, trying to get free food and stuff. He, like, makes his French accent thicker. Right, to right, like, right. To, like, to sound flirt with the waitress. Cute, <laughs> to flirt with the waitress. And then also yeah. later on, when he's talking to his lawyer or whoever, um, his lawyer is like, oh, I knew that wasn't you because you speak weird French. <laughs> like, yeah. Remember yeah. that? I love that part. He, like, yeah. he's like, oh, you use really weird vocabulary. So I knew that That's wasn't really you. Funny. Isn't that great? I love it. That's cool. And that's funny, too. Like, it's funny that he would use, like, weird old French because I think he does speak English a lot. Like, so he woke up in America in the 80s and sort of adapted to, like, American English and hasn't, you know, at that point hadn't been in France in, like, 100 years. So it's, like, really interesting. And even when he was in France 100 years ago, he just showed up to, like, bother Armand's and then came home so like he wasn't even around like right he, and he didn't even grow yeah. up in fucking Paris he grew up in the middle of fucking nowhere in the country yeah yeah so yeah like that's that's great like because you know like as we all know language changes all the time so like yeah. yeah if he was like not even in a main sort of cultural center like I mean he was towards the end of his mortal life but like you know what I mean like yeah like you're totally right that would make a huge difference if he was like living in the boonies like not really <laughs> exposed to anybody <laughs> right right wow we yeah <laughs> yeah that's cool wow here the last one that we have to go through is louis yeah of course god damn it okay <laughs> so <laughs> Uh, I don't even know where to start. I have to take a fucking deep breath. <laughs> All right. Um, essentially, I'm taking this class this year called Rhetoric of Memory and Memorials. Um, and, like, we're not really learning about memorials at all. We're just learning a bunch of weird, like, philosophy shit. <laughs> so, um, a fun thing that I got to fucking delve into for the last month is this thing called trauma theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so fucking... Strap the fuck in, I guess. <laughs> um, and here we go. So, okay, so we read this really cool article about what happens when witnesses to traumatic events or, like, victims of traumatic events talk about their stories to an audience. So, obviously, I thought of Louis, like, the first mm. thing, because that's literally all of the first book. <laughs> um, that's true. And so... um Essentially what this article, like, argued, which just, like, blew my fucking mind, 
was the idea that, like, when victims talk about their stories to an audience, they impress a moral responsibility on the audience. And, like, it just presents this, like, urgency to act. So it's impossible to listen to a trauma victim without feeling this urgency to act to help them. Most of the time, like, the action is sort of, like, resolved through the act of just listening and, like, being, like, supportive or whatever of them. And so it just, like, reminded me of the end of Interview with the Vampire when Daniel is just like, wait a second, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, when Louis, like, finishes his story and he's like... Yeah, so, like, that's all. I'm really sad. Everyone that I love died, and, like, life sucks. Um, and Daniel's just like, wait, what the fuck? Like, no, like, I want a resolution. Yeah, I thought that, like, really represented that argument, that, like, there's this, like, there's this exigency, there's this, like, urgency between the, the victim and the audience. They argued that, like, witnessing changes the victim and the audience, so... Neither of them walk out of the room the same way, essentially. Right. I feel like that's kind of obvious, but, like, that's <laughs> fucked up. Um, <laughs> and then the, la- <laughs> the last one that I thought was really interesting was that this article posited that, like, trauma victims are, when they express their stories, they are performers. They're not objective so they're not, like, just relaying the events of their trauma. They are performing an excess of the trauma that they experienced during the event. So mm-hmm. the idea that, like, they're... Yeah, they're... they're perf- And, like, I'm not saying performative as in, like, faking, but they're, they're just, like, subjective to their own experiences and right. their own, like, trauma. And so, um... Yeah, so, like, they can't, they can't articulate everything, like, really clearly. And so, that just, like, sort of fucked me up about Louis. Because I think that's, like, <laughs> super true about him. I think, like, throughout all of Interview with the Vampire... Like, he's a, te- he's a storyteller. He's, he's telling his story. He's, like, really, like, stuck in his own head. And his grief is pretty performative. It's, like, really, really potent. Really, like, uncontained, I guess. Um, and so it's not just, like, him sitting Daniel down and being, like, okay, like, this is, like, the vocabulary that we have for vampires, like, blah, 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 blah. He's, like, expressing, like, this whole entire thing, and it's, like, really sad. So that's, um, that's what I had for that. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I'm, I'm, like, really quiet, but I'm just, like, listening very, like... (laughs) that's okay i know that's like one of the more like harder to digest pieces Um, because it's like really fucking complicated but it's just like talking about like the way that like trauma changes everyone Mm -hmm. and it's not like only the victims of trauma but the people who also like witness these victims trauma Mm. like everyone is affected Mm. um And it's, like, sort of a cyclical thing that, like, everyone, like, whenever you express, or whenever people express their trauma, people are always going to want to, like, help or to act in some way. And so I think that's a really different way to look at Louis and Daniel's relationship, because I feel like a lot of the time Daniel is seen as, like, a passive sort of 
Like, he was just, like, picked up off the street and, like, sat in a chair. And Louis just, like, venting to him. Yeah. But I think Daniel does, like, he's genuinely invested in the story. And he's genuinely, like, he wants to, he wants to act. He wants to do something by the end of it. Yeah. So that's one way to look at their story. This is super Um, interesting because don't you think, like, every single, like, I feel like every one of these books is, like, performing everyone's trauma. Like, that's all these books are. 100% agree. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, No, this isn't, like, this isn't really rhetorical theory, but I learned it in a rhetoric class, question mark, so I put it in here. But it's, like, really fucking sad psychology. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. Oh, man. I mean, well, it's funny you mention it that way because, I mean, like, you were saying that something being performative doesn't mean you're faking it. Like, I mean, the whole concept of the stories is rhetorical in that sense where it's, like, they're talking about their trauma, like, and it is performative. Because why why do any of these guys decide to do that? Like, they're just just got to talk about their shit. Like exactly. Had, you know, like, like what? Like, why did Louis do that? That like begs the question: like, can trauma be rhetorical? Like, I, like, what is the agenda behind behind him sharing his grief? Yeah. I don't fucking know. It's also true. I mean, in um in psychology, sometimes when you're coping with trauma, like like one of the things sometimes you have to do in therapy is like your therapist will have you just explain it to them over and over and over until it makes sense or until you're desensitized to the point where it's not traumatic to think about. So yeah, uh, I'm really upset because like Louis, I want to know. I know we've like speculated before. It's like <laughs> who's because remember Louis says like he's told the shit to someone before. So it's like I want right, to know like, yeah. how often does like, he talk about this? Happened? No, but yeah. d- don't yeah. you remember in the that question, the Q and A book, the trivia book? Yeah. Like one of the questions was like who he talked to, and I think he talked to Armand about it. Yeah. But um, it seems to me in interview it was he had to get it off his chest to go on. That's kind of how that's my like head canon about it. That it was like he had to find some dude to talk to to just tell the <laughs> yeah. whole thing. And it's like mm-hmm. if you just pick a random guy off the street because like according to Beckett, Daniel was oh. seventeen when this happened. Oh my so, god! So it's not like it's not like he's oh, not no. a reporter then. If if that's the case, he's not a reporter. He's a seventeen-year-old <laughs> no, child. Kid. He's just like some random kid that he picked up. Just so some it's like high you know, and we and what we know about Louis at that point is Louis is very hardcore. Like he kills, you know, because he doesn't have the mind gift and stuff. Yeah. So he's kind of a ruthless killer. So He'll he could, yeah. Anyone. So he would pick some guy up, tell him your story to get it off your chest and get rid of him. I Please. that's just kind of how I imagined, <laughs> you know, what would have happened. Holy shit. Wait, that just, I'm, wait, I need a minute to cope with this information. Because that reminds me of, like, on Dexter, how, like, the only people he can be himself around are his victims. Yeah. he's about to kill them. Yeah. So, like, Ashley, did you ever watch Dexter? No, I haven't. I know. All right, because it's about a serial killer. and Yeah. um, you know, so, you know, whatever the sort of, like, theme is of the episode, he, he pretty much will have, like, a victim per episode or whatever, but there's a lot of times where there's something he's trying to work through in his personal life because the theme of the entire show is him pretending to be human and sort of faking it till he makes it, and so there's, like, all this domestic drama, like, he has all this interpersonal conflict, like, with his sister and his girlfriend and his job. And, like, he doesn't know how to navigate Uh it because he's a sociopath and he's, like, not sure how to be empathetic and, like, how to pretend to be human. So the only people he can be himself with are his victims. So whenever he kills somebody, he, like, drugs them and kidnaps them. 
and prepares the whole, you know, the whole shebiggle bangle. Like he just sets uh-huh. everything up. Right. And then he always wakes his victim up before he murders them because he talks to them for a little while and like gets his shit off his chest. And anyway, oh I God. just thought about Louis and now I'm upset. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Yeah. No, but it's like, what, what else is the motivation? Like, I don't understand if it's not that. Like, yeah. why would he do it? Like, why like, do you talk to psychologists? On... It's because you can't handle it to keep it inside your body. Like, you have to get it out. Yeah. And I don't see a vampire seeking out a psychologist necessarily. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you just pick some random guy up and tell him your shit. And then it turns out that, like, you can't do it. Or when you start talking, something comes up and you, you decide not to do it anyway. Or that thing of, like, how Daniel kind of starts to feel like he has to act or like he engages with it at the end he's like i refuse to let it end like this it's that changes the whole situation and that makes louis not get rid of him yeah also like that approach daniel to like in that specific moment like because obviously daniel just wants to be a vampire at a certain point Mm. and just becomes like really selfish about it but at that point i think he's more interested in showing Louis that like his life still has meaning and like that his immortality is wonderful. Yeah. Like he's so like he's, he's so much more interested in like teaching Louis that like, yeah, that his life is worth living. Yeah. Oh no. (laughs) Um, Every time we do these podcasts, I'm like, this is going to be a fun time. And then something happens. Yeah. Actually, do you have any theories about like what was going on in Louis's life that um, made him feel like he had to do like do you think something happened or like what do you think? Well, like what I was going to say earlier was like well like one of the other things that I wrote down for him sort of goes into like what you guys were saying. It's like this idea, it's called the second persona theory. So like the first persona being like the personas that we create for ourselves. There's also a second persona theory where like every time you talk to an audience you're like you're shaping a mold that you want them to fill so i think that like sort of rolls into like what or at least it like begs the question what were louis expectations for daniel because like i think he does like specifically tell his story for like a human audience like he makes sure like very like explicitly to like mention what life is like as a vampire and like all this stuff for like Mm. you silly mortals who can't understand anything or whatever the fuck i think he also just like wanted fucking company like we were saying earlier i keep thinking about that fact from somewhere where Anne mentioned them like meeting in like a gay bar or something like that yeah um that was how it was originally gonna go down Right? Yeah, that's the that thing. Or am I just like imagining? No, that? I I think it's in the um original version of Interview with the Vampire, like the short right. story. Cause I, right, I think right, right. Yeah, the, uh, the bar was called like the Pink Baby or something. Yeah. <laughs> and so like I, I don't recall if it was explicitly gay or if we all just assume that. But he's just hanging out. He just wants to be around some dudes. Ugh, this is uh, a lot yeah, of information. I think he just like saw this dude and was like. Hey, I'm really fucking sad and I need I need you to I need you to be what I want you to be right now, which is therapist, listener, human, like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he just saw him and was like, I'm you just... know, I wanna kill that guy, but first I'm gonna talk to him. Like, <laughs> I mean it also could, that it could probably. be just that, that like it developed into this is someone I actually can talk to. It feels like I'm talking to him or for some reason I just started talking and now we're talking. And now I might as well just yeah. spill my guts. Like, spill everything. And now we might as well just go for <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Louis. I'm trying to imagine the timeline. Because when 
when did Armand leave? Like when? It was like mid twenties. Right. Yeah, I think it was in the 20s. Yeah, so it's been a yeah. while since. It yeah. So it's been yeah. it's been a hot second. Well, like that's what I always am interested in thinking about too. Is like, did Louis want his story to be released? Like, did he want Daniel to publish it? And like, did he intend for it to be this huge fucking deal? I really don't think he did. I I don't think he did either. But I feel like at some point he had to have known that like. If he left Daniel with the tapes, if he, like, like, what else did you fucking expect? Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I, yeah, I don't think, I don't think he, like, purposefully came out and was like, okay, like, I'm gonna send out a fucking siren call for all the other vampires. No. But I, like, I don't know, I'd be interested in, like, rereading the book and looking for clues if he was trying to call out to other vampires or not. But, like, if he was gonna kill him afterwards, it doesn't matter if he recorded or not. He could just destroy the tapes. Right. So maybe it was just to make Daniel feel more comfortable in the situation of, like, if he's recording it and it's being used for something, it makes sense. Otherwise, I'm just sitting here talking to a fucking guy who thinks he's a vampire. Like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) He's wearing a cape. Yeah. (laughs) Wearing Uh, a cape, exactly. Well... Think of this too. Here's another thing: is like you see this happen all the time in the books of like you know an interview with the vampire. It seems like it's an anomaly because it's the first book and because Dan is a human. But like, how many times in these books have we met somebody that got to talk for like thirty pages? Oh my god! <laughs> or yep. like, and like, there's several of the books where the entire like framing device of the book is someone sitting down to talk to someone else. Like, like all the books that Lestat didn't write are somebody coming to someone else and being like, I gotta tell you this shit. Like <laughs> You won't fucking believe what I've been through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, so it, that's that's Louis sitting down with Daniel. It's, let's see. It's, it's David and Armand. It's David and it's, Armand. It's David and Pandora. It's Tarquin and right. Lestat. It's like every time, it happens a bunch of other times, like within the books, these like little meta stories, like, Armand telling Lestat his story, Marius telling Lestat his story, um, the elder telling Marius his story, David Talbot talking about a Rembrandt <laughs> painting for 60 pages. Um, oh, my Mem- God. Oh, fucking Memnock telling Lestat his story. Roger telling Lestat his story. Capetria got to tell his story. So, yeah, Jesus. like, oh, and, and Merrick telling... Uh, well, Merrick tells David stories, and then David tells Louis the story. Oh, my yeah. God, yeah. Marius, Marius invites Thorne into the exactly, bathtub. Yeah. Marius does it in the bathtub, which is like excellent. Like so, basically, I wonder if this is just this is just like an instinct that these vampires. Like, what if this is just a symptom of being a vampire? It's like this, like this thing they have to do. You yeah. like you can only live for like a certain amount of centuries before you have to word vomit everything. Yeah, it's like kids, you know, like with children. Like if you, <laughs> if you have to keep a secret. Then you have yeah. this burning like urge to tell someone just because you you've been told you can't tell anyone. And I think like if you're a vampire and you've been told all your life like do not you know expose yourself to the world like this is you know we have to keep this a secret forever. Then and I think that's yeah. the it's the same reason why Lestat is so intent or like he's he like you know hell bent on telling everyone he's a vampire because it's like. Yeah. When you've been told you have to hide in the secrets or like in the shadows and like stay away forever, then I think you have the, you want to do the opposite in a way. But I guess it's, it's, mm. I guess Louis he took the like final step and told a human where the others usually talk to each other or maybe they kill people afterwards. So like, I don't know. But I feel like also it's just like, cause like Louis was the first one to do it. 
So yeah. I feel like if we found the root of his, then it would, like, because I feel like the other books are sort of almost reactionary. Yeah. I mean, definitely Lestat's is. He's like, wait a fucking second. Like, everything <laughs> yeah. that you read was wrong. Let me yeah. tell you what actually went down. Um, so I feel like to an extent, most of the other books were kind of like, either, well, like, no, like, this was wrong, let me correct the narrative, or, well, everyone else is just fucking writing books, so, like, I might yeah, as well it. tell my story, like, mm-hmm. I might as well put it out there as well, like, yeah, you know, like, whatever, so, Louis was, I, I don't know, I just find that so fucking funny that out of all of the vampires, Louis would be the one to start the fire, <laughs> but. Was that a joke, like, a Louis pyro joke? Oh my it god. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all night. <laughs> nice. Oh man. Oh man. So I wonder if uh, if he just couldn't take it anymore. Like he's like, listen, I haven't told, I haven't talked for eight hundred pages in centuries, and it's my turn. Right. Well, because also he ha- he hasn't been underground. All of the other no. vampires like go underground when they're feeling fucking depressed, and he hasn't. He's yeah. been fully yeah. alive and fully sane for two whole centuries. Like, that's yeah. a lot. That's, that's a pretty lot. heavy. Can I, uh, since you mentioned that, this is totally off topic, but um, I just want to mention, since you brought that up, my favorite thing that makes me die is um, <laughs> in in Blood and Gold when Marius goes underground and then he, like, wakes up during the Dark Ages and he's like, Oh my god, yes! And he, like, goes back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, my favorite. Oh my so, god. He wakes up and everyone it. is dying. Yeah, he's like, this is awful. It's like, wow, that sucks. The plague fucking sucks. (laughs) He just goes back to bed. That that would be me. That's so good. Yeah, Yeah, that's like That's like one of my favorite things in the whole series. I'm so glad you got to read it. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah, wow. What an icon. Right? Exactly. You're like, listen, he's the best. (laughs) Oh my god. My dude. Oh, oh my god. Oh, I feel like my brain is like uh, is like uh, terraforming yeah. for all this new information. <laughs> oh my goodness. I feel very stimulated. Um, cool. Good. I mean, yeah, that's like the bulk of what I had to say. I'm looking at um the good. last the last section of your notes where you did mention code switching, like, but it's funny because yeah. when I said that, I hadn't read that far because I got, like, halfway through this document and was like, I don't know <laughs> what any of this means, and it, I didn't absorb oh it God. at all, so I was like, I'm just gonna not no, read fine. the rest of this, and I'll wait till Ashley explains it, because No, I but that means confused. you actually got the concept, so... You know like, what, Ashley? I totally Fucking gold star for you. Do you um, guys know what, um... That's dope. Do you know what, do you know what zone of proximity means? Have you ever heard that I term? do not. It's like a psychology, like, learning thing where it's, like, they use it with, like, child development a lot where it's, like, if someone doesn't understand something, it doesn't mean they can't understand it. Like, the zone of proximity means, like, how much can you understand if someone explains it to you. Oh, gotcha. You know? So it's, like, we're all capable of being smart as long as someone explains <laughs> it. Oh, my God. So <laughs> I feel like... Perfect. Because <laughs> I think, you know... I fuck her, I joke um, around, and we, we call ourselves inarticulate, but I'm not stupid. I just didn't finish high school, so like, I don't have a lot of this like, vocabulary to use. No, it's fine. And, like, there, like, we talked about, we've talked about this a bunch, but like, there are different yeah. forms of intelligence, so yeah. it's like, fucking yeah. stupid that people measure themselves on the same scale, because that's dumb. Yeah. 
So I feel both a little bit blessed and cursed to be in the program that I am in right now because like <laughs> we do have classes that are like advertising and branding and we have like like the class that I took my sophomore year was like persuasion and mass media so like how do you use mass social media to persuade people um like through those channels and stuff um but like our core classes like that everyone has to take to like get the degree are like really heavily theory based um which is like really super cool and I think it's like a really good like foundation for like you said like deciphering (laughs) like everything else but I found out that I really fucking like it, and so now I don't know what I'm gonna do <laughs> with my life. Um, but that's a me problem, because um, I really like just talking about communications and vampires and Green Day and theater <laughs> um, and like all of the different things. Like you can fucking use it for everything, so it's great, but also the worst because it's so fucking vague, and you can do anything that you want with it. Yeah, that was um all that I have for you today. So we did Marius with Aristotelian. We did Armand with Persona Theory. We did Lestat with Vernacular and Code Switching. And then we did Louis with <laughs> Trauma Theory and Audience Theory. Hmm. Cool. I feel I feel smarter. Yeah, same. I, I feel like I learned <laughs> Oh, stuff. thanks, guys. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I'm glad. Um, also, I think, uh, I don't know where this ties into everything but I think everything we've discussed is like really interesting and I'm curious about Lestat and persona theory because of like him being an actor and him being a performer as a rock star right yeah and like and also that I think he presents himself differently I think the the person he presents himself as when he writes isn't always honest and oh yeah no and also also that he's very like troubled on the inside but he's always behaving like that he's really bubbly. Yeah. So basically God I have a lot it. of feelings. That's <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. Like That's to a really point sad. of like And like also ah that like brings me like the things that I didn't fucking mention. But like I guess we have like a little bit more time now. But like the way that I think Lestat would like view the world or like like decipher the world I guess is through this thing called the dramatic pentad where like this dude fucking Kenneth Burke whoever the fuck he is like came (laughs) up with this thing and he's like you can you can like analyze anything like a play and it fucking works so these like these five things it's like act scene agent agency and purpose and like you can use it to dissect actual plays. It was, like, an actual thing in, like, theater. But he's, like, you can use it to, like, literally analyze anything. And there's, like, these ratios. So you pick two of them. So, like, you can think of... I don't know, just, like, everything. You can think of it in ratios of, like, how does this specific scene, like, this place, like, this, like, physical location, like, change a person's agency? Or does it change the person's actions or like how like how do these things like interact with one another um and like the whole theory behind this was because like he thought that like like rhetoric should be active and critics should be active and we all have like a responsibility to like use our persuasion for good 
like, to change the world for good. I mean, I think that's, like, something that Lestat would, like, super be into because he's very much, like, actions, not words. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, he's very, like, action-oriented. Um, he's, like, he's a doer. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's just, like, sort of how he would see the world. I mean, from my interpretation of his character. Um, yeah. He's just, he's trying really hard to, like, control how everyone sees him all the time. Yeah. And it's sad because I think he's afraid that everyone's gonna fucking abandon him because everyone has abandoned him in the past. That's true. And it sucks. You're right. <laughs> well, get ready for Black Communion it because it's... God Something it. else <laughs> no. is happening in that book. <laughs> oh, god damn it. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lestat. Yeah, but that's also why he comes in in, like, his own book and he's like, Hey, guys, do you remember all that Louis said? That's all of it. That's a lie. I'm not yeah. like that uh, at all, yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. But he had to write his own book to correct whatever because he was, like, scared that everyone's going to think he's a villain. And he's like, hey, actually, I'm a right. good dude, so... And then, oh my god, wow, sorry, I thought that I just had also was that, um, you know, he was a comedia actor. He, um, the specific theatre that he, like, ran away to participate in, in Paris, that he joined was a Commedia dell'arte troupe, which is specifically a, like, type of theater that is, like, based on, like, caricatures of, like, people. So, like, they wear masks. They, like, literally, like, wear masks, and they're, like, super over the top, and they're, like, super, like, ridiculous. But the character that Lestat plays, Lilio is the one fucking character in the entire troupe that doesn't wear a mask. Um, and that's, like, symbolic of, like, oh, he's, like, a lover. He's, like, a young person. He's, like, actually, like, not a caricature. He represents, like, the hero, like, who we all want to be. Um, so that's really kind of fucked up because I realize that now it's kind of, like, almost flipped. That, like, he's wearing a mask and everyone around him... Well, I mean, I think they're all wearing masks, too. But, like, I think he <laughs> thinks that they're being genuine. And so, like, he puts up this, like, front... And it's swapped now. My head is exploding. What <laughs> sorry, is happening? Sorry, I like just had an epiphany. Oh my god. I'm gonna have to do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna record <laughs> my own little mini podcast on fucking <laughs> theater in this. You know how TED Talks? They have their own like organized independent events. Can we do like a <laughs> TED Talk X VC? <laughs> And everyone can just, like, <laughs> come around and, like, oh share God. all their theories. And, like, I can just, like, please. collapse please. in my seat and cry all day. Jeez. Oh, my God, yes. I want people to send in their own little TED Talks. Yeah. That'd be so great. Send in your TED Talks. <laughs> right now, immediately. Immediately. I don't even know if anything that I just said makes sense. I, like, blacked out. <laughs> I just got so fucking excited. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, oh god <laughs> I'm, I'm just excited about masks and theater <laughs> oh my god I'm really sad about um I'm having unexpected Lestat pain <laughs> and uh I don't I'm not really yeah, sure where I'm supposed to you. put it I know every now and then I'm like ooh surprise Lestat pain should get that checked yeah. out Ugh. <laughs> 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 uh, but because I'm sad um, because I think Lestat pushes himself with his personas almost in like a manic way where 
he's mm-hmm. very he's like a very volatile mm-hmm. person and then he like crashes like he hasn't figured out a way to balance himself like yeah, he's gone he's gone underground like he went underground twice like and it, he's really young like he shouldn't have gone underground twice already then yeah. he's like then he's like catatonic on the floor i think that counts as being underground except he was like just laying on the floor in front of everybody so then he's like catatonic on the floor for years yeah and like and then he's like tried to kill himself. <laughs> it's just like not good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Baby, like please. Can you, <laughs> can you please? Yeah. Oh no. That's making me think about Armand again. Is that like? I know. Me too. Uh, like how? How you know? It's just like how did he manage to not go? I mean, I know he tried to off himself. Like, let's just ignore that for a second. But like. It's like maybe his way of doing things is actually the more efficient way. At least for him, it's working. But also, you know what fucks me up is that like think is thinking about when Lestat and Armand first met each other, because they were oh, both no. at like this really weird, vulnerable stage, and like there was this there was like a crossroads where like they could have been vulnerable with each other, and then they didn't. They weren't. They fucked it up again. Well, I mean, Armand was, I mean, but Lestat was more interested in Marius. I, I mean, so. that's, that's very valid. That's, that's gonna, true. That's true. I'm gonna go ahead and say Lestat fucked that one up. Yeah. I guess it was, like, almost the opposite, though, because, like, Armand was, like, swapped one persona for another, almost, where he was, like, coven master, and then he was like, wait a second, actually, um, I wanna, I wanna bang you, and I wanna be your your lover for the rest of forever please love me um and listen i think he did um, like a that's oh god i'm sad never mind it's upsetting because that moment of armand's life is like the he's like in between like he's in a crack in between two personas right like yeah. he's, he's going from cult leader so like like i say you know it's obviously he's still a coven master but the coven itself is the thing that changes so his role has to change from being like sort of yeah tyrannical he's still and shifting. like yeah yeah like he's i don't think he's leading the theater with such a heavy fist and he's relaxing and not being so dogmatic towards like the vampire rules versus like relaxing and embracing like this new lifestyle so his night with Lestat where he just falls the fuck apart is like this mm-hmm. little glimpse into like maybe who he really is where he like doesn't like have like a personality to to cover himself like it's so sad I'm so upset <laughs> and even Lestat says like because you know how during that whole conversation like how every now and then Armand like he can't control his like facial expression like he get like and Lestat's like what the fuck <laughs> like uh, right and then yeah, that goes into just, the the uh, whole thing about using the mind gift because that's yeah. how controls everything is mm. through that um mm-hmm. i mean even like that's sort of what i was thinking that's what i had in mind when i was like writing about when i was typing up the google doc like <laughs> i was thinking about when fucking armand met sybil and benji and like he was a fucking burnt up little crisp and he had to project himself. All right. oh, sorry. Like, you called him a dusty I, bitch, and now you're like, burnt up little crisp. 
It's too much. I'm just telling it like it is. Oh, <laughs> I God. mean, am I wrong? You're, no. you're ruthless. <laughs> um, OMG. But that is like the most literal, um, <laughs> like crafting of a persona. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> yikes. Uh, I can't believe this. <laughs> can't believe this has happened. <laughs> uh. In interview, it's said about Armandus the Coven Master that it was commonly known that he didn't even believe in the whole ideology of the cult. Mm, mm-hmm. It feels to me like that was someone everyone kind of knew. He's yeah. performing something that he doesn't believe in it. That it's kind of like, we're all here doing this thing. He's, he's controlling everything. He's setting up the rules and stuff like that. But he doesn't actually believe in it as such. Which is also why, I guess, it's so easy for a cult like that to fall apart. Fuck. You're I'm right. upset. I'm really upset because, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just really upset because, like, <laughs> like, I don't, I really, like, I don't think Armand has ever bought any of the no. shit, like, for real. And, like, like yeah, even, no. oh my god, like, when Lestat meets him and, like, he's in the church, like, and the other, like, the other coven vampires are like, oh my god, like, he can't go in there. And Armand's like, we can go in there. Yeah, yeah he's like, he, um, he, like, of course we can go he in. knew Fun the fact. whole fucking time. Yeah. Like, he's always yeah. known. This is devastating. He needed to survive. And Which is like, also why yeah. when Marius fucking shows up and he's like, oh, well, he's a Satanist now, so I'm just going to fuck off and right. leave him alone. I'm like, you, oh, are, you, are you an like, idiot? Like, have you, did garbage. you never pay any attention? I'm, I'm so upset. I mean, I have my own feelings about that, which would be an entire, that's going to take a whole extra hour, so I won't get into it this moment, but like, but then it also makes me really sad, because like, thinking about all that, I'm like, especially once Lestat, like, disbanded the coven, like, the cult, why didn't Armand just leave? Like, he could have, he could have just left, Mm. but he just like, uh, he just couldn't do it, he had, he needed Louis, he needed somebody else to like, get him out. Mm. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Emily, Goodbye uh... is fucking right. <laughs> I feel like I'm gonna go underground now. Like I'm yes, gonna yes. have oh a, just yep. like five hundred year ya. old like nap. I'm gonna dig my own grave. I really could use like a nice dirt nap for yeah. sure. <sighs> God like damn, what guys. Gabrielle does, just like dig into the earth. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, shit. Dude, Gabrielle is my hero. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, I'm I also want to go into the ground and never come back. <laughs> want to go outside and wrestle some lions? <laughs> yeah, honestly. <laughs> I want to get myself an indie hat, get myself some khaki. <laughs> oh, man. Guys, this is just another... Why did we do this? I feel like we have to end this episode immediately because I just can't handle anything more. <laughs> Yeah, like, I, I pretty much just used up all my chips just now. Like, I don't know. Oh, fuck. I don't understand why we don't like anything nice. <laughs> we had yeah. too much fun with the Halloween episode, so now we gotta tone it the fuck down. Alrighty. Well, thanks for indulging <laughs> me Um, in yeah. my my academic wank. Um, <laughs> I hope y'all learned some shit thought about vampires in a new way and yeah <laughs> that's what i have to say about that i think this was very educational say. i this was a, a great uh tech talk 
I uh, am very happy <laughs> yeah. I got to attend. So thank you for being academic. Yeah. Awesome. I feel a little more articulate after today. Mm-hmm. We'll be coven of the semi-articulate. <laughs> That's a charismatic name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just flows right off the, the coven tongue. of the semi-articulate podcast. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's I us. Think, uh, I think we're finally starting to give back to our listeners by telling them something useful. We've been <laughs> we've been used to taking and not no what's that meme I can't remember. <laughs> oh the fucking meme! I'm so used to giving and now I get to receive. Yeah. <laughs> but the other way around. <laughs> so, yeah. That's be true. Anyway, so where where yeah. can uh, everyone find? Oh us yeah, if you want to listen to our episodes, um, which is the most important thing, I guess. <laughs> Um, we are on <laughs> yes. SoundCloud and we are called the Coven of the Inarticulate. Um, and then you can, I haven't seen us there personally, but we are on Stitcher, I hear, the Stitcher app. We are on iTunes, Google Play, possibly other places where you can listen to podcasts. Uh, excluding Spotify. Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe one day. Maybe one day, yeah. Um, <laughs> then we have a, an email account. It's called the coven inarticulate at gmail.com. So you can send us your shit. And we have Facebook, the coven of the inarticulate. We have Tumblr, the coven of the inarticulate. No, what we called? The coven inarticulate. The coven inarticulate. Yeah, the coven inarticulate. We are on Twitter at coven underscore pod and Instagram at the coven inarticulate. And that's it. Goodbye. (laughs) 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 I'm just thinking about like, do you guys remember when we first started this podcast? And we were like, yeah, this will be fun. We'll talk about our favorite characters and our favorite books. It'll be fun. And now, Actually, we're, just, that, now we're just sobbing. That happened to me and Raph when we were talking about Blood Communion. Like, the first half, we were just shouting and giggling and having Aww. a great time. And then the book got really real. So the second half, we were like, ugh. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Fuck. Wow. Yeah. It's weird yeah. how the most the thing that stands out to me most right now about Blood Communion is for Reed. Why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so glad Ashley's Jesus. up to the tr- to the new trilogy now. We can talk about Fareed soon. I feel like Get hearing the little tidbits of um stuff that y'all are giving me is the um like have you seen that meme on Tumblr where it's like movie spoilers, but I don't give you the context. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just like random ass like pictures of like different things. That's that's what it's like. But I'm excited to know the context. Yeah. Well, I guess it's time to go. Yeah. Guess- right. Well, uh, goodbye, everyone. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for Another- joining us. Um, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Goodbye. Good night. Bye. Bye.